encourage you, especially parents, to keep working with your children on this. And, and children, encourage you especially to keep working with mom and dad, dad on this. What wonderful verses that point us back to the most glorious being in all the universe and our great hope. I want you to turn your Bibles on this last Sunday in this series on joy to Philippians chapter 4. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 4. And I realize that um, there are probably some of you, perhaps even many of you, who came in here this morning, maybe knowing that we're going to talk about uh, joy and happiness. And just a reminder, we're not making distinctions between words like joy and happiness or delight. Um, the Bible doesn't make those kinds of distinctions. And so when I say happy, I mean joy. When I say joy, I mean happy or delight, uh, delightful. And that you know coming into this message that that doesn't mark you. You're worried about something. Something bad has happened the past week or month or year. Um, there's something that's all-consuming you. And if you were honest, it's, it's difficult even to concentrate um, on a talk like this. Uh, I get that. But I also um, want to convey to you that the hope that God offers you is not changing your circumstances. If, if that were all God would offer us, that would be an inferior and a limited and sad hope. God offers you the person of Jesus Christ as your great hope, no matter what circumstances you are in. There's an enduring kind of joy, an enduring kind of happiness that God desires for us to find, discover, and be satisfied in. One of the interesting things is about this whole idea of happiness is we probably, for most of us, have a, a, a here's, a, here's where we're typically at when it comes to happiness. There's a uh, psychology professor at the University of California um, who, when she was doing her graduate work, started studying happiness. And um, I've, I'm not saying her name because it's Russian and I can't pronounce it. Uh, but she continued to pre make this the preoccupation of her career. They actually call her, uh, not only around campuses, but around that part of the nation, they call her the queen of happiness. And one of her central discoveries is that, that all of us have a, um, what she calls a happiness set point. And what she means is that um, for most of us, we're, we're happy at this amount. We don't fluctuate between here and here. We're typically happy here. And so when something really bad happens, um, we kind of fall off for a season, but then we fluctuate back to that set point. And when something really good happens, we, we go up here a little bit, but eventually fall back to that set point. You remember the first Sunday we talked about this idea that, that happiness is something of a moving target? Like we, we desire X. And then if we get X, over time, X doesn't have the same fulfillment for us, and now we're looking for Y. And then when we get Y, there's a satisfaction, but then that, after a couple of years or months, it doesn't give us the same satisfaction anymore. Now we've fixated on Z. You understand what I'm saying? Where there, there's always something more that we're going to require for happiness. But she argues that we have this set point that that's kind of who we are, and that we probably never get here or here long term. 
And the argument from Scripture where it talks about joy literally hundreds of times is it doesn't need to be that way. And if you come here this morning um, and you're kind of wrestling with anxieties or you're wrestling with depression or you're wrestling with uh, what ifs, what if my child does this? In other words, you're just kind of filled with fears. You do not have to remain there. God offers you something more than you could ever imagine. And I think it's probably typified best as Psalm 37, verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I've shared with you before how I've actually had people tell me that means that they could divorce their wife and go marry their soulmate. But notice the first part. If you don't get the first part, the second part doesn't make any sense. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, if God becomes the the central passion of my life, lo and behold, I am going to receive the desires of my heart because I have fixated on him who is steady, steadfast, and stable. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. We read these verses and then pray for uh, God's help and then make some comments about this passage. Philippians 4, beginning of verse 11. This is uh, Paul is writing to Christians in a city in what is today at the edge of Greece. Uh, it was in Macedonia. And in this section, he is thanking them for their um, financial support for his mission work. And he, st- he says in verse 11, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live in almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, Father, uh, we talk about happiness. Man, this is where the rubber meets the road for all of us because we are all looking for happiness. It doesn't matter what kind of job we do. It doesn't matter what our marital status is. It doesn't matter where we live. It doesn't matter how much or how little money we have. It doesn't matter whether we're strong or weak, whether we're young or old. All of us seek happiness. And yet, tragically, we're, we're part of a culture in which happiness is often sought in areas in which they're not, they're not secure. There's no stability. And so even if we have some uh, happiness, we acquire this, that, or the other thing, we have happiness for a season, it begins um, to escape us. And now we think something else will provide that happiness. And after a few months, we get that, and now we think, We need something else for happiness. (laughs) And all along, you are near to us, arms wide open to us, inviting us to find the joy that does not fade. And so I pray for brothers and sisters here this morning who are perhaps discouraged and think they will never be happy, they will never be full of joy, that that's, that's... out of their reach, I pray, if nothing else this morning, that you would 
convince them that it is at least a prospect. And for others, Lord, that, that they will move beyond the idea of a, it's a possibility and really begin to grasp onto how can I pursue joy more adequately? How can I, how can I fixate on the, um, the God of the universe who does not change like shifting shadows? To be able to look at the good news of Jesus Christ and see in it the triggers for all kinds of wonder, delight, praise, and yes, even happiness. We pray against the enemy who is a master deceiver who does a con job on us so readily saying, oh, this is what will give you happiness or this is what will give you happiness. Don't listen to God. Help us to ignore him this morning that you would bind him and silence him for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I want you to notice a verb that Paul uses a couple times in these few verses, and that's the verb learned. I have learned. So here's a man telling us, a writer of Scripture, great apostle, follower of Jesus Christ, this is something he had to learn. Then just pop in, and all of a sudden he's changed. I have learned, again, IV says, I've learned the secret of being content. Here he says, I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. Now, one of the things that he describes, one of his life situations, is, is a kind of um, joy that we would expect. I would say this kind of joy, um, as a, he's learning, so he's a student. It's an elementary student kind of uh, learning, though. It's an elementary student in the school of joy. When he says, I, I've learned uh, to be content if I have everything, and we're like, yeah, duh. If I have everything I want, I, I'll be content too. And we all desire this contentment. I'm going to speak about contentment. I touched on this first Sunday. Um, contentment as the root of happiness. If we're not content, we're not going to be happy. If we are content, we probably are going to be happy. If have learned the secret of being content, and I'm content when I have plenty. I have a full stomach. I have financial resources. I have people that care about me, around me, and are telling me good things about myself. And we're like, yeah, I, I, I can be happy then too. And, and I, want, I want you to think about the claim that all of us, and I said it earlier, all of us seek happiness, that we desire happiness. Some of you might say, I, I don't think that's necessarily true. Uh, you may be like me. When I, um, even when I was growing up in a Christian church, I wasn't a Christian yet. I thought I was. And even in the early years after I came to Christ, I, I, thought, of, um, I thought happiness was something that, that God didn't want for me. I mean, we look at the lives of martyrs and so forth down through the ages, and we look at the sacrifices that missionaries have to make for, for Christ and so forth, and I thought... You know, God desires us to be austere. I had a monastic kind of idea about God. And one of the people that has really helped to dislodge that notion from me, I refer to him frequently as John Piper. His classic book, Desiring God, is really a, a, a breaking out of Jonathan Edwards 300 years ago. Jonathan Edwards' argument is that God desires that we be 
happy and full of joy, but he desires that we find that joy and happiness in him, the greatest being in the universe. And I began to, as I began to read Piper's work, I'm drawn into the scriptures. I'm seeing verses I never saw before that, that speak about God's desire for us to be full of joy. And it was really transformational in my mind. It didn't take me to joy, but I was starting to see that this is God's desire and this is his hope for us. Blaise Pascal, back in the 1600s, who was a, a genius mathematician, French mathematician, uh, scientist, and also a Christian, wrote, all men seek happiness, all people. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. In other words, some people might seek glory and they think they're going to find it in war, and so they, they pursue war. They're going to enlist so that they can receive this glory, so it's a desire for happiness. For another man, his desire for happiness is to live, is to survive, and, and war threatens that, so he seeks his own happiness by not enlisting. Pascal continues, he says, the will never takes the least step but to this object or this objective. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. In other words, there is some desire, there is some satisfaction I get to doing this, doing this, and doing this, or joy that I get not doing this, not doing this, not doing this, and you do it too, just like I do. It's how we think about trying to find a new job. It's how we think about finding a, a romantic relationship. It's how we think about buying a house or a car or, or having money. We desire happiness, and God says there's nothing wrong with that. But what is the object of our happiness? Because Paul says that not only does he find contentment when things going well in life and he's being satisfied with pleasure or with success, but he's also content when things are going badly, when he has problems and troubles. And, and you, re you read that and you think, is he nuts? Who could, who could say this? And the temptation is to think, well, he must not be living in the real world and he really doesn't know what it's like to have the wheels come off in his life. Oh, contraire. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and you'll hear about a man who was imprisoned. You'll hear about a man who was shipwrecked three times, who was beaten with rods three times, who was whipped countless times, who had a target painted on his back both by, his, by the Gentiles, his ethnic enemies, as well as by his own people, the Jews. That is, he went about his mission work. He was in danger from rivers. Uh, he was in danger from bandits, and on and on and on. And this is the man who says, I have learned how to be content even in those kinds of situations. That seems, one, unbelievable, and two, wow, what would that be like? This is, Paul's an elementary student. We're elementary students when we say, I can be happy if all the things in my life are going well, but this is graduate student kind of work when it comes to the school of joy. And Paul has the answer for how he can do that in verse 13. For I can do for, in other words, he's explaining um, how all of this comes about. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. 
<laughs> Over the years, this is one verse that I've always kind of frustrated me. Uh, it's often memorized by uh, young people going on short-term mission trips and so forth as a reminder that even if they have food in front of them that they don't like, even if they're being asked to do uh, work on the, on the project site that they don't like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, but that's not the context. The context is that there is happiness available, there is joy available in the worst of situations because of Jesus Christ, because of the work of Christ, because of the presence of Christ. You know, the Bible says that if you become a Christian, you turn in faith to Christ, you repent of your sins, the Holy Spirit moves into your life. The Bible speaks about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. But 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 also tell us that that is really ultimately Jesus living in us. The Lord is the Spirit. And now the Lord, Christ, the Spirit living in us is changing us, that last verse in that, in that second chapter, changing us more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so you Christian, you have Jesus living in you, and so we can say as well as Paul can, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I can look at the latest disaster in my life and say, I, I'm content. I can look at the loss of a loved one and say, I'm content. Does it mean I don't cry over the loss of a loved one? I might cry a river of tears, but there is a, a settledness underneath what's going wrong in my life that cannot be disturbed. Jesus is the only ground, listen, Jesus is the only ground for your joy because he's the only thing, the only one who will always survive and who will always satisfy. The moving targets we talked about, the money, the people, the romantic partner, the children, the future aspirations, all of that is unsure. You might have it today, gone tomorrow. Or you might never get it. Jesus will never leave you, never forsake you if you turn your life over to him. Jesus will always satisfy you if you make him the delight of your life. I, I guarantee it. All the other stuff that we fixate on and say, I, I could be happy if this is true in my life is not sure is not lasting. I was with a brother yesterday morning who just lost his wife a couple months ago. And what, what, and I, I mean, I, I felt like I was in heaven's throne room listening to him and talking with him. Is he grieving? Absolutely. Is he hurting? Absolutely. The joy of the Lord is his strength, though. It was just, I was in awe. That's possible. That's what Paul's trying to convey to us. This, is, this joy, this Jesus-based joy is possible. And Jesus himself, he's not only the grounds for this joy, but he's the classic model for this joy. Let me take you to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. 
In other words, Jesus willingly went to the cross because of what he knew he was going to secure for people like you and me. Because he knew what was going to be the result of his death on the cross. That criminal sinners like you and me were going to have hope and a future. And so even though, was he um, horrified by the prospect of the cross? Absolutely. Read the Passion accounts at the end of each gospel account. And Jesus is there in the garden. He's, he's sweating drops of blood. He's praying to his father, oh, father, if there's, if there's some way that we can avoid this, let's do it. Yet for the joy set before him, he went to the cross and he went there willingly for you and I. I'm convinced that, th- that this is what changes us in terms of our happiness in Christ or our lack of happiness in Christ. Discovering the significance and the meaning and the import in my life of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I said at first Sunday, I'll share a little bit about my own story here. If uh, I were to ask you, what's the greatest commandment? You would say... There we go. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he uh, reported this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. All all of you, all of who I am should love God um, most. Now, do you ever think about, uh, we tend to to, um, um, think about this commandment in light of it's more important than the rest. But do you ever fixate on the idea that it's a commandment? Do you ever think about that this is, God is ordering us, saying this is our duty to love God with all of our being. How do we do that? Now, part of our problem when we hear that command is we think of love as something we feel, right? I I love my wife. I I feel warm toward her. I, I, I feel thrilled when I'm in her presence. Feeling. The Bible doesn't speak about love that way. Every command about love, you know, love one another. I'm like, I don't really like that person very much. So, love one another. It's a command. So it's speaking, about, it's speaking about behavior. It's speaking about taking willing steps of the heart, even if I don't necessarily feel that. Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to give you four points of how I think you can nourish that love and obey the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first is to rehearse and embrace your sinfulness. Rehearse and embrace your sinfulness. Now, I, know, I understand that this is uh, counterintuitive, and increasingly in Christian circles, we hear that the, the thing to do is to not think about how sinful we are. I, I disagree. Nobody is thrilled by the gospel except sinners because it's the only remedy for sinners. I'll tell you a little of my own story. Let me just throw out Galatians 3.19 first because it, uh, Paul says there that the law, the law of Moses, right, which says oh, don't do these things, don't do these things, do these things, right? 613 commands. The law was given to reveal our sinfulness. 
And this is the reason that some evangelistic approaches start with the law and ask people, did you ever lie? Yeah. Did you ever take the Lord's name in vain? Yep. Did you ever look at a woman with lust in your heart? Yep. Okay, you've broken the law. You, you've just verified that you are a sinner. Um, I share with you the first Sunday I, I struggled with depression for 10, 12 years um, while I was a pastor. And you know what began to change things for me? Um, I, I'm a little foggy in how all of this worked out. It wasn't a, a moment in time, but it was a growing realization. Um, I, <laughs> I used to preach a lot of behavioral kinds of sermons. Do this, don't do that. And if I were honest, I would say I would, um, I would never have articulated this. I would have never admitted it to you verbally. But deep down in my soul, I believed that I was... I was a pretty good guy and probably better than you. And God began to kind of peel back my heart and reveal to me that I was starting to see some scriptures like I share with you frequently, like James 2.10, if we keep the whole law but stumble in one point, we become guilty of all. I began to see more and more in the sin list that God's not simply talking about murder and sexual immorality, but he talks about self-righteousness, and he talks about how we think about people and whether or not we love them. And eventually it dawned on me, Keith, you are in God's sight. You are exactly, exactly like, and, and I compare it to the worst person I can think of, someone on death row for serial killings or something. Keith, you're exactly like that person. In God's eyes, your self-righteousness is as reprehensible to God, every bit as reprehensible as the serial murders. Your lack of love for this person, that person, is every bit as offensive to the, and the nostrils of God as a pedophile's mistreatment of children. Exactly. And it was from there that the gospel began to, like the sun came up in the gospel. How glorious it was. It wasn't nearly so glorious before because I wasn't that bad of a guy. I didn't really need as much of Jesus' blood to save me as some of the rest of you. There was an evangelism curriculum we used to have here at the church that uh, had um, not just teaching on the videos, but dramatic vignettes. And it followed this small group as they were trying to become more intentional about sharing the gospel. And the, one of the main couples in the group lived next door to a guy named Jerry. And this wife in the house, she could not stand Jerry. He was just obnoxious. He was loud. He was crude. He was crass. And one night they're talking about Jerry and one of the members of the group said, well, you know, um, I'll call her Dawn. I don't remember her name. Dawn, uh, Jerry needs Jesus just like the rest of us needed Jesus. To which this woman replied, well, you may have needed Jesus like Jerry needs Jesus, but I never needed Jesus like Jerry needed Jesus, needs Jesus. And it got deathly quiet in the room as the woman realized what she had just said. She was so much better than Jerry that she didn't need the gospel nearly as much as he did. 
brothers and sisters, only sinners and all kinds of sinners need the gospel. And so when you rehearse your sinfulness, this is not to a bad end so that you're down in the dumps. This is to a good end so that you can see the gospel in all of its majesty and all of its glory. Because Jesus died not just for the really bad people, but the pretty good people like you and me, if that's what we think of ourselves. Rehearse, review the gospel. Let me take you to Ephesians quick. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Romans uh, 3, 9, and 10 says that none of us are good, right? And I preached that passage. I memorized that passage. And yet I would kind of read that and my mind would play a trick on me. Oh, but I am. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. All of us fall short before God. Ephesians chapter 2 goes so far as to say, verse 3, all of us used to live that way, speaking about those who obeyed Satan and obeyed the uh, desires of our flesh. All of us were like that at one time. Used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. Uh, that word anger is not as intense as it should be. The technical term in some of your translations is God's wrath. I get angry when rabbits are digging holes in my backyard for nests. But the wrath of God is God's righteous um, distribution of his justice upon us. We were by nature, apart from Christ, I don't care how good you are, how good I was, I don't care what Christian home you grew up in, didn't grow up in. All of us in the same boat under God's wrath. This is, this is who we were naturally. Now, first rehearse and embrace your sinfulness. I think this is going to start the start us down the road to obeying the great commandment. Secondly, re reveling in what Jesus did for you. So again, if I see the horrific nature of my sinfulness, now I'm ready to see the gospel in all of its glory. Um, continuing in Ephesians 2 verse 4, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. And then verse 13, uh, once you were, in the middle of verse, once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, I, one of the tragedies of modern evangelical churches in America is that we really think the gospel is nothing more than a ticket to get out of hell. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a piece of the gospel. It's a result of the gospel. But the gospel is that God takes broken sinners like you and me and rescues us, makes us his children, gives us an eternal inheritance, transforms us from the inside out so that we can be the people he's called us to be. Once I came to the point of realizing just what a scoundrel I was in God's eyes, the gospel began to become um, something more than what I had preached over the years. And we're going back now to maybe 2005, 2006, something like that. And, and my preaching began to change because God was changing my heart. The gospel for me was something of a, 
I don't want to say I was academic because I, I think I was saved. I understood something of the gospel, but I didn't understand the greatness of the gospel until I understood the awfulness of my sin. And I've shared before, I, I will never, ever, ever get over the remarkable nature of the gospel. But that's because I grasped the amazing breadth of my wickedness. And I wonder how many of you would say, you know, I've been, I've been in church all my life, and uh, I know Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me, but ah, it's not that big a deal. If you were drowning in a pond and somebody pulled you out, you couldn't get out yourself, would you be amazed at that person and what they did for the rest of your life? You bet. That's what Jesus did for you. So rehearse our sinfulness, but then revel in what Jesus has done for you. Third, remember that nothing or no one can be more satisfying. This man I was with yesterday, he loved his wife. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Oh, my. Did they love each other. But there is a satisfaction that went beyond what he found in his wife. And that was a satisfaction in, in the one who will never die, who will never let him down, who will never leave him, never forsake him. And then last, if we are to learn the kind of contentment that leads to joy that Paul experienced, last, rethink how you think about trouble. Rethink how you think about trouble. James chapter 1, verse 2. <clears throat> James chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it, consider it an opportunity for great joy. We're like, whoa, no, 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 no. I'm looking to get away from troubles. They don't make me happy. They don't bring me joy. Well, this is an opportunity, he says. Why? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. And all throughout the New Testament, there is this, there is this acclaim for endurance. But this is, this is the essence of what God wants for the mature Christian. Enduring, enduring, enduring. So let it grow, meaning your faith, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing needing nothing. Rethinking trouble. Um, I think the groundwork was being laid for these discoveries of mine um, at the end of those depressive years. When in 2001, 9-11 <clears throat> occurred, and as a pastor, I was at a loss to explain that. Where was God that day? Was God behind what happened? Was God overlooking what was happening? Was he saying, I can't do anything, this is what these people do. And it drove me into the scriptures, and I began to discover something that, again, I had taught but really didn't believe, and that was that God was behind everything, that God is sovereign and he is in control of everything. In fact, I remember reading scriptures that I never realized were there and, and having this sharp intake of breath saying, oh, I don't know what to do with this. And the more I meditated on those scriptures and prayed and asked God to help me understand who he was, the more I, be <clears throat> more I began to realize this is not a black mark on God's nature. 
but this makes him bigger than I ever realized he is. And I think that understanding that God is behind everything, <clears throat> that he has his hands in everything, everything, laid the groundwork for uh, uh, um, appreciating God as a loving God in the midst of all that trouble. In other words, God, God does not bring trouble into our lives, and I think he brings trouble into our lives. Not to destroy us, that's the enemy, but to develop us. Not because he's mad at us, but because he loves us. And if we see God, even God's hand in the midst of trouble, if we believe he's a bad God, then we can't find joy. But if we see all of the evidence that's all throughout Scripture and even in our own lives that he's a good God, then his sovereign work in my life is not something that I fear but can rest in. Can rest in. Augustine said, God wants to give us something but cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. So here's the thing. If you and I have our hands full of our romantic partners and our children and our wealth and our um, desires for the applause of the crowd and wanting people to think well of us and this, that, and the other thing, then God cannot give us himself for our satisfaction and joy. And it's not that God wants us to abandon all of this. That's the old monastic idea. I've got to get, sell everything or I can't truly follow Jesus. It's rather that perhaps it's not that we want too much to be happy, but that we don't want happiness enough. When our hands and our arms overflow with these substitutes for Christ, there's little room for the real deal and little chance we'll experience the magnitude of joy that Jesus offers his followers in himself. And so C.S. Lewis could say, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. <clears throat> a couple weeks ago, Betty and I were at the ocean. Some of you know this. And, and uh, we knew going in it was going to be a lousy week weather-wise, and it was. And we got there Sunday evening, sun was shining, and that was it. Clouds and 50 temps in the 50s and rain. And, and then the morning we checked out of our hotel, beautiful sunshine. I got up early, took a magnificent picture of the sun coming up over the ocean. It was, it was glorious. But we didn't have sunshine through those, week, through those days. But my heart was full of joy. Why is that? Because my contentment was not built on the sunshine up there. It was built in the sunshine that was with me in the car, at dinner, when we were playing games in the hotel room. But Betty was the sunshine of my week. And I wonder how many of us have said, I, I'm, I find joy and contentment in, 
in, if the sun is shining that way financially or if it's shining that way relationally, if it's shining that way in my marriage, if it's shining that way in my career prospects, if it's shining that way in how people think about me, and if that's the case, that sunshine will not endure, that sunshine will, will, will it, it's going to let you down. But mark my words, Jesus will never, ever, ever let you down. Father, thank you for the sunshine of our Savior. That even though clouds may appear in the sky and the rain falls and the wind blows, we don't need to be tossed about like a ship on a sea. That if we know Christ, we have Christ. And if we have Christ, we can know joy. I pray for people that might be here who don't know Christ. They can't imagine the things I'm talking about this morning. They don't make any sense to them. Because they don't have Christ. They don't know Christ. I pray that your spirit would break through into their heart, filling them with hope that this could be true. And they pursue you as a result. And for the believer who's here, who's not sure it can be true either, their arms are full of of children and, and classmates and athletic or academic accomplishments. Arms are full of uh, wealth or either, either the des- desire for wealth. And you so desperately long to pour Jesus into their lives to satisfy all of those things that you desire, they desire, that can't be satisfied. And I pray for my own heart. For whatever time I have left, that Jesus would be the beginning, the end, the fullness of my satisfaction. For his glory, for my happiness.